Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex. I'm an MD pursuing an Oxford Clinical Artificial Intelligence PhD and an Harvard MBA. I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and consulting. Today is the first installment of our Physician Consultant series. So what exactly does a consultant do? I've gotten this question before from many docs. Well, it's a broad term referring to professionals who come in and solve problems for clients. Consultants may be involved in all steps of a problem-solving chain. They can help their clients conceptualize and narrow down what a problem is, they can strategize a solution, and or they can actually implement the solution. Some doctors independently consult part-time in their specific area of expertise with specific clients, where they typically act as industry experts. But there are several consulting firms like BCG, McKinsey, Deloitte, and Bain that have thousands of dedicated consultants to solve various problems throughout all industries. Healthcare consulting in particular is a robust field that includes clients ranging from national health systems, hospital systems, biotechs or pharmaceuticals, pharmacy benefit managers, and more. Any player in our complex American healthcare system can reach out and hire consultants to solve virtually any problem. Great summary, Shad. We will be talking to Dr. Felix Matthews, who is a managing director and physician leader at Deloitte Consulting. Felix is the national lead for Deloitte's academic health and research leaders practice. He advises his clients on strategies to succeed in an increasingly competitive market. His clients include academic health systems, national health plans, and life science companies. With over 20 years combined experience in the medical practice and healthcare consulting spaces, Felix brings to his clients a unique blend of clinical understanding and business insight. Felix trained in trauma surgery and accident medicine and has led research focused on clinical technology innovation at major academic centers in the US and abroad. Felix is also a published author in peer-reviewed medical journals and a columnist on virtual health. Felix, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Yes, thank you so much for joining us, Felix. We're really excited to have you and it's great to see you again. So let's just get started right away with some questions. Can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself, your early years, and then how and when you decided to pursue a career in medicine? You know, one thing which guided me uh, throughout my early years was the sense that uh, I'm very privileged. Uh, There were many things that just fell into place without my doing uh, anything about them. Just to give you an example, I was born on the right continent, into the right household. Uh, school was relatively easy, you put in the work, uh, and, but it was easy. And so I felt this sense that I should put those giftings somehow to play. And back in the time, uh, medicine was the hardest course of studies. And so the thought was, well, you know, let's pick the hardest thing, and that'll be a good use of my talents. Plus, there's this sense of being able to help and work with people in need as a physician. So it seemed like a noble cause, but also a good use of skills. So that's really why I picked medicine. Uh, Although I was deciding between medicine and computer sciences back in the time, I thought, well, medicine would allow me to uh, go in many different directions, and I could probably continue doing some computer sciences on the side. So that was really the first decision point there. 
That's great. I really love that. And if you could talk a little bit uh, about sort of where you grew up and, and sort of a little bit more color in terms of how your childhood was and are, do you come from a, a family of a lot of doctors and then things like that? I didn't have any physicians in my immediate family. Uh, in fact, uh, my father was a, a mechanical engineer and later on a computer scientist. And so I grew up more in the technical world uh, with that idea of maybe going in that same direction and not, not at all in, uh, you know, in the medical or clinical environment. So the, so the choice point was really, like I said, where can I help people? Where can I do something uh, to give back, uh, but also do something which would challenge me? And, uh, you know, as, as I was growing up, I, I had a lot of other thoughts I, I was thinking of. I was thinking of going into uh, religious studies, maybe. Uh, so there are many, many different thoughts on my mind. But it seemed like of all courses of studies, medicine would be a, the hardest, B, the one which would be most difficult to do on your own, and C, the one which would be most rewarding down the road uh, and, and often ability to help. Whereas computer sciences, you can learn some of it on your own through autodidactic studies. Uh, similarly, religion, you can dive into different world religions uh, by reading. Uh, whereas medicine required practical exercises, uh, rotations in clinical care, uh, lab sciences, uh, and those types of studies, which would be very hard to do on your own. That's great. It sounds like you really thought about it in a sort of systematic way, and you had a couple of different options. I remember when I was a first year at uh, Emory in Atlanta, I, I started off thinking I was going to be a philosophy major, and then things changed very drastically. And at one point, I was going to get a PhD in organic chemistry, but things changed again. And so I think a lot of us can really sympathize and sort of relate to uh, sort of the thought process that you were going through when you were deciding uh, medicine. You also mentioned uh, a little bit about having a technical family, a family of engineers, and and we'll talk a little bit more about how you've interfaced with technology, you know, in your career. Sort of moving on from your childhood and medicine, so when did you actually know that you would have a non-traditional career path? You know, I've spoken to you previously about your work in the emergency department, you were always talking to me about how you tried to optimize workflow to make things more efficient. I think you may have mentioned that was one of the first times you started thinking about some of these problems. But just if you could discuss your path away from clinical medicine to other ventures and the experiences that prompted you to go down that path. The non-traditional path probably started even earlier on, because even during medical school, I was programming uh, I was coding on the side, and I developed two electronic health record systems, one in pneumology and uh, one in cardiology. So I was in medical school, and at the same time, nights and weekends, I was coding and developing software and then sold them to university hospitals. And so I was already in a non-traditional path at that point. And then uh, in re during residency, I continued doing some of that, but then also got engaged in uh, research and in, in technology innovation. You know, as I continued in academia, I was then working at the interface between clinical care and technology with various preoperative planning tools, immersive technologies, 3D reconstruction, haptic uh, planning tools, and really bridging that space between technology and clinical care and, and advancing some of those technology pieces. And I think those two parts together, the clinical piece and the technology piece, was really the, the first you know, foray 
into uh, you know other things than clinical care. Now, you mentioned emergency room work, and that's something which I only realized a lot later. Uh, if you if you think about medicine, a lot of it is very linear uh, and sequential. So you'll see one patient at a time, uh, you know, one clinic visit at a time, one procedure or surgery at a time, and then you'll go to the next one. Uh, and yes, you might round in multiple patients if you're rounding, but you'll still see one after another. So it's very sequential. And the difference in the emergency room is that there's a lot of parallel processing happening. You've got multiple patients in, in different bays, and all of that is happening concurrently. And there's both a clinical aspect to it about making the right diagnosis, uh, making a treatment plan, maybe initiating the treatment in, in the emergency room but also a fair amount of management around keeping on top of things, what's next in the order of actions, are the test results back, are the x-ray images back, do we have the script ready, is the patient ready for discharge, There's a lot of management aspects. So, and all of this is happening concurrently. What I didn't realize at the time, but, but came to notice later, is that I was very good at managing multiple things concurrently, and I was very good at the process management piece uh, within the emergency room. So you'd come in, I remember these night shifts, you'd come in, emergency room was filled with patients, and I would just come and just clear it up. And uh, that's, I think, a skill around managing processes in addition to the knowledge work of diagnosis and treatment. And combining the two uh, felt very natural to me. And and that's then translated later on and, and even now into some of the consulting work we do, where there is a knowledge component. There's also a process management component, and then, of course, an interpersonal interactions component. So the emergency room work was really more of the moving into process management piece. My research and my innovation uh, exploration was more about the foray into other spaces beyond clinical care. That's so great, Felix. Thank you for sharing it. You know, I'm just picturing you in medical school, like at 2 a.m., just coding away in your computer. I, you know, medical school was hard enough for me without that added stress. So kudos to you. But, you know, that's sort of one of the running themes. If you're interested in something, uh, you're going to somehow make it happen. You've certainly done that in your career. So that's great. And it's really an, an insightful framework to sort of think about it sequentially versus actual the parallel processes that take place in the emergency department. I always say that, you know, going down into the emergency department at Beth Israel here in Boston when I was working there, my heart rate would go up by like 20 points because, it, you know, people think surgery is chaos, but it's, it's very controlled in a significant way. It's controlled chaos, maybe not trauma surgery, but most surgery. But in the emergency department, it tends to be quite more chaotic. And so uh, I think that's a very sort of insightful way of looking at the difference there. You mentioned, you know, how that ties into process delivery. And that's sort of what I want to talk about next. You know, you're knee deep in healthcare innovation and the movement to sort of revamp healthcare delivery. And I find that a lot of healthcare providers are so busy with clinical work that they don't really have the time to learn about process delivery, outcomes management, value-based healthcare, what have you. I know I wasn't, you know, until I started delving into the literature during business school, really. So what can those who are interested in these topics do to keep wind of the way healthcare delivery will change in the coming years? You're absolutely right. It's it's very hard to keep up with everything, particularly in medical school and in residency. There's just so much clinical knowledge to absorb and uh, so much to assimilate cognitively that it's hard to find space for other items often. What I would liken it to is that in today's day and age, you need to think about clinical continued education, 
Uh, and many people do that in clinical care. You go to trainings, you go to seminars, grand rounds, you read journal articles, you go to conference, you stay on top of the medical clinical literature. And so a parallel effort should be to stay on top of some of the healthcare management aspects, the reimbursement challenges we're facing, some of the innovation around new ways of using technology, mechanisms to engage consumers. And you, you should almost approach it the same way you, you approach your clinical continued education, uh, reading journals, uh, reading articles, um, watching a podcast or a video cast, uh, going um, maybe to one conference, which is more oriented around topics around health information management rather than just the clinical specialty which you're in. And there are a number of good resources out there uh, which help keep people uh, on top of some of these trends. Some of them are very inexpensive and accessible. Some of them are free. One of them which I uh, like to use is a, a daily newscast prepared by a, an organization called Rama on Healthcare. And it has a compilation of the innovative trends and recent articles. You just click through them, pick the articles you like, read, read up on a couple uh, of those and, and keep on top of things. So that's one avenue. Another avenue is to, if you're really interested, get involved in some of the healthcare management within your institution. Because some of the administrators are dealing with the topics you mentioned on a day-to-day basis. And they're looking for clinical partners. They're looking for the physician partners to walk that journey with them. And if somebody raises their hand and says, look, I really want to get involved with this. I'm interested. I'm willing to sit in those extra meetings. I'm willing to work on these projects. That's a great way to help your institution and a great way to stay on top of things uh, as you do it. Yeah, I think those are some great suggestions. And you mentioned that there's a lot of really cool resources out there. And one of the things I struggled with at the beginning is the fact that there's so many good resources. There's some bad ones for sure, but there's a lot. And one thing I suggest to people is, you know, find a couple of things that you're interested in and then subscribe to one or two or three different outlets and then just stick to those. It's better to just have a consistent set of resources that you can lean into rather than trying to read one article from you know 50 different websites. So you mentioned Rama, I, uh, I use MedCity News for some health tech and then Life Sciences News as well. And so these are some good things that people can start getting plugged into. You don't have to read an hour every day. You can read you know an article or two a week, whatever you can to just stay up to date. You mentioned technology as well. And let's talk about technology a little bit. You're obviously very interested in it and you're an expert in it. You did your graduation thesis on medical informatics. You talked about your coding experience. You've led R&D projects that focused on producing 3D tools to help doctors and patients. You're big on virtual health, telemedicine. You've written about things like algorithms, VR, and modern medicine. So as we know, technology can be a double-edged sword from the perspective of doctors. You know, It can be an enabler in that it can help physicians be more accurate, productive, provide better care but it can also have the potential to be a disruptor down the line. Whether AI and radiology or the increasing push in the VC world for decentralization of healthcare away from hospitals, primarily through healthcare innovations uh, and technological innovations. So can you share your insights regarding this relationship between docs and technology and how it's going to evolve down the line? It's It's a super important topic because technology is evolving more quickly than we can keep up with it. Uh, and it's evolving in, in, on several different layers. One way I, I like to think about it is we are very good at bringing technology to the forefront of tertiary and quaternary care. Uh, there's, there's new robots, there's new imaging modalities, there's new 
medical devices, which are all at the forefront of the most complex care. And uh, generally in academic medicine, we're very good at adopting some of those and putting them in practice. But then there's the whole rest of the healthcare system, which is more focused around chronic conditions, care management, population health, and engaging a much broader base of patients and consumers who either have chronic conditions or are still healthy but might be at risk of developing conditions if not managed well. And there's an opportunity for technology to play a very important role there. And we're seeing some of those startups emerge and, and tackle that space, but there's still a long way to go. So what I'm framing up is the bookends of the spectrum of clinical care, the, the high-end tertiary quaternary care, and then the healthy at risk and, and early chronic conditions and chronic condition management, and technology has a role all along that. And innovation is happening all around us, and I'm, I'm very excited about what's going on. The biggest challenges are adoption of uh, new and emerging uh, tools in that intermediate space. We, we haven't really cracked that case today, and I'm really hoping that the next generation of physician with digital natives will embrace that, not just on the high end, uh, not just in the consumer-facing healthy individuals, but in that middle spectrum of chronic conditions. Now, you ask, what's that going to mean for, for physicians? We're going to be using those technologies. They're going to make our lives uh, easier in many ways. But I firmly believe that the, the role of the physician in the physician-to-patient interaction will continue to be critical. I can remember this. This was true back in the days when we only had phones. You know, I was in charge of the surgical service at the level one trauma center. And uh, while manning the emergency room and the shock room at night, we also covered the floors. And nurses would call and would describe a patient's condition. And you could look up the lab results and you could, uh, look at all of that remotely. But I frequently uh, took the trip up into the patient room because just laying eyes and hands on the patient told me so much more than all the lab results, all the technology, all the visualization could do. And I believe that that'll continue. One way to think about it is the analogy to self-driving cars. Self-driving cars are a great example of technology making a trip easier. The activity or the job of moving from point A to point B uh, gets easier if you have self-driving cars or autonomous assisted driving technology. But what makes the trip interesting is planning where to go in the first place. Uh, and the self-driving car is not going to plan where I want to go on my holiday trip or who I want to visit, and secondly, who I'm going to drive with, who's going to be in the, in the passenger seat along with me, and that interpersonal and that human component will continue to be critical also in medicine. Uh, it's, it's who we work with and how we interact with patients that will make us good clinicians. And again, the technology, just like in the self-driving car, is just a means to doing something more efficiently, more safely, more conveniently but I don't think it'll replace or should replace the interpersonal connection. I love that analogy. And I, and I tend to agree. I, I sometimes think of pilot and actually piloting a plane. And, you know, back in the day, it was such a complex thing to do. And you had to be very well trained because you can't rely on the autopilot. You have to do everything yourself. And pilots nowadays are still very well trained, but you can sort of give some of that responsibility up to the autopilot but you still need to be there when things go wrong. You know, in the 1% of the time or the 0.1% of the time when things go wrong, that's when human intuition, human sort of pattern recognition, it's very, you know, complex. And our brains have evolved over, over a long period of time to be able to adapt to those really 
really tough situation. So I tend to certainly agree with that. I think there's going to be a healthy coexistence down the line, at least in the medium term. I guess we'll see what happens uh, hundreds of years from now. You know, those are some great insights, Felix. I'm going to turn it over to my co-host, Alex, now for a couple of more questions. Thanks, Chad. And uh, thanks, Felix, for uh, the great insights, really. Um, I think the the point you've mentioned around electronic health records and that basically you're coding during medical school really reminded me basically when I was starting my PhD in like computer science and doing clinical AI, like I've never done coding before. And yeah, well, I actually have to learn it from the start. And it was very interesting. And I think you've mentioned also another thing, which is very important, the fact that we need to do a lot of optimization around processes in the hospital. And really, for example, predictive analytics can help us around that. And one of the papers we we did around patient flow, which is basically how can we use AI to optimize that whole patient journey within the hospital itself. So my question is a bit related to that. So in previous articles on the Deloitte website and with the HealthSec magazine, you've talked about the integration of new technologies into care, be it AI, wearables, telehealth, and 5G. I'm very curious to know your thesis on how these technologies would interplay in modernizing healthcare and how physicians can actually play a role in shaping that trend, especially that you've mentioned that external players are keen for physicians to be involved in these trends and in these decisions. Let me answer that question in two parts. Firstly, what are some of the biggest innovations which I see coming along? And Uh, To some extent, they're already here, but I think we'll see much more broad use of them. So one of them is computer vision, which is the ability of machines to optically observe the real world, interpret what is happening, and share those interpretations, either with humans or uh, filter them into clinical decision support systems. And so that's the second area, which is clinical decision support which is really taking a varied group of data points, which could be numerical data, it could be auditory data, it could be visual data, and integrating them in a way that can be used to inform next best action or treatment planning or immediate response and so on. So it's a clinical decision support. So I think those two areas will materially change how care is is thought about and how care is delivered. And I'm really excited to see some of that evolve. You ask, how can physicians be involved? I think physicians can be involved at at several layers. One obvious one is as innovator. Uh, In the clinical practice, you will encounter situations where you think there's a better solution for this. And you can be an innovator. Uh, You can advise colleagues who are more technologists and the clinical relevance and aspects of some innovation. You can found a startup and be the clinical advisor or chief medical officer for a startup. Or you can even be advisor to larger organizations. So there's that innovator, discoverer, research and development aspect. But then importantly, there's also a role for physicians in the business management aspect of some of these uh, discoveries and really bringing them to market. That's part of my personal experience also. I was leading a two-year R&D project, and I was the clinical innovator uh, on that engagement, representing the academic uh, discovery side of the engagement. And I was partnering with a uh, with a large life sciences organization. I had an administrative counterpart, and the administrative counterpart was responsible for thinking about go-to-market, commercialization, launch of the discoveries and the products we were developing. And it just stood out to me that I didn't understand how my administrative partner was dealing with some of the questions. 
And, and that was really one of the reasons I, I ended up pursuing an MBA because I thought I need to learn and understand those business decisions so that our innovation can be brought to market effectively. But what I realized uh, over the course of doing that is that there is a role for a clinician or a scientist to have business understanding and be able to guide and lead that path to market. And absent that, it just becomes a discovery which sits in the lab or in, in the basement of some uh, research organization. So I think there are two ways really that physicians can be uh, involved, as I said, R&D, and then also on the business management side. I think those are really great points, uh, Felix. And it feels that there is a theme emerging around physicians being part of interdisciplinary teams. For example, this is something that we're seeing in, in our lab here in Oxford. For example, have the computer scientists who would actually code the algorithms and we would have the clinical counterparts who would help shape up the problem. There is another aspect around the clinical decision support systems that you've mentioned, and this perhaps linked to the aspect of using it as a tool. And so many of the clinical decision support systems that are being developed are being uh, benchmarked according to their performance alone, but that may not be the actual best way to measure them because we should benchmark the performance of the clinician using this tool because at the end, it's not the tool making the decision, but it's the clinician who's making the decision with the aid of the tool. So if I may just shift a little bit to the MBA side. So you have an MBA from HBS. Chad and I are both pursuing the, the same degree there. A few weeks ago, we had Dr. Gibber Medhin on, and he talked about how he decided to do the MBA because he was inspired by a group of MD executives who had the MBA. So I'm very keen to know your thoughts on whether you think that the MBA is an important degree for doctors to consider, especially for those who want to pursue on traditional career paths. To answer that question, I think we need to do a little bit of uh, analysis and dissection of what an MBA uh, really yields. So I think about it yields three different things. One of them is a platform and a venue to discuss a number of business issues and business challenges in very compressed and short time span. So it gives you exposure to many business problems in a very quick and fast-paced manner, and it, it expands your horizon in doing so. But, so that's one thing which is where it has value. The second thing which it'll do is it, it helps you think through a methodical approach to solve business challenges. And every case is slightly different, and every approach is slightly different, but you sharpen your mind and develop your own approaches and your own mechanisms to solve business problems. And again, you do it repetitively over multiple cases, and that shapes your, your ability to think critically, and it shapes your ability to think very differently from what a clinician's mindset is. A clinician mindset is a lot of knowledge, pattern recognition, and then uh, differential diagnosis. But in business, there are many more aspects which factor into it. And then it turns out the uncertainty in, in the business world is much greater because often the data and the knowledge available on which to build decisions or make decisions is much more limited. But, but the MBA helps shape and train that. And then the third thing which an MBA will do is it creates this network of peers. So you now have like-minded individuals, but also individuals with very different backgrounds and very different ways of thinking about things who can complement your own uh, line of thought and who you can bounce ideas upon. And so uh, that, that creates really three very valuable aspects, which I would encourage physicians as they become physician leaders and physician executives to consider. Now, do you need to engage in a two-year MBA to get that? 
Maybe, but maybe not. There's executive education, which is available. Uh, there are shorter programs which are available. In, in fact, one of the things that uh, we at Deloitte have done is we have launched the Deloitte Physician Leadership Academy, which is a condensed program focusing uh, not so much on the business skills in terms of marketing or finance as much, although we have some of that, but much more on the leadership, uh, leading through influence, managing change, guiding people, setting direction and strategy, and those types of aspects, which are very relevant to business, but are often very hard to learn as a clinician on the job because your head's down. So in summary, do I think an MBA is valuable? Yes. Do I think it's the only path? No, there are alternatives to it. But I would like to flip maybe your question around, if I may, and offer, often I speak with physicians who are earlier on in their career at just graduating from medical school, and they're trying to determine, should I go do an MBA and then move on into industry or business management, or should I do my residency? And what I found uh, over the years is that having had clinical experience is so much more valuable than merely having book knowledge from uh, graduating medical school. And yes, you'll have done a couple of rotations in your third year or uh, somewhere along the program, so you'll have that exposure. But having actually been in residency, having had to make your own decisions clinically, having carried life and death decisions in the process, and importantly, also just seeing how hospitals and clinics and care delivery sites operate and function and, and seeing where the day-to-day -day grind is makes you such so much more insightful and so much more useful in the business management world. No matter what you do, no matter if you go into life sciences, if you go into technology innovation or going to traditional uh, healthcare management, having been there and done that is so valuable. So I would encourage folks who are at that decision point, consider carrying it through, doing your residency, and uh, you will be a much more well-rounded physician executive than if you bifurcate out early. That is great insight, Felix. And just building on top of that, it seems also that there is a theme emerging from all our conversations that medicine provides you with a very good basis of knowledge. But then to venture outside the traditional path, you need first to understand what is the potential route that you can take. And second, you need to build some additional skills to get to the end of trajectory where you want to be. Consulting is a very popular career option for medical doctors outside the traditional path, as is investing in entrepreneurship. I would really love to know your advice on how should physicians who are thinking of venturing off the traditional path approach this topic? What should be the first steps that they should take as they move ahead in this journey? First, I'd like to offer an analogy. And the analogy is when you're in medical school, you learn a lot of uh, interesting uh, information and knowledge. When you go into residency, I was always surprised. I don't exactly know why, but I was so surprised. I was like, oh, wow, this condition actually exists. Wow, this patient presents exactly the way we learned it in the textbook. And this is trivial, but I remember the first time I diagnosed an appendicitis. I was like, oh, wow. This exact, you know, the symptoms and, you know, it's exactly the way I learned it. So there was this eye-opening moment. And I think the transition from an MBA or business school to management consulting is very similar. In, in business school, you've learned a lot of theoretical cases or real cases, but discussed in a theoretical classroom environment. 
And when you move into consulting, you realize, oh, wow, this actually is a business problem. I have a client on the other side of the phone line or another side of the table who actually is dealing with this exact problem we discussed or a derivative of it or some variant of it, or I can draw some parallels between what I learned in classroom and what's happening here. And so there's that eye-opening moment, which I think is, is spectacular in, in consulting in particular. Now, what do you need to prepare uh, for consulting? I think you have to prepare to buckle down. And the beginning will be very much like your residency. You're going to be working really, really hard. It's going to be a steep learning curve. There are a lot of aspects of business management, which even business school won't have imparted on you. And you'll be learning very, very quickly. You'll learn different terminology. You'll learn different working styles. You'll learn different ways of engaging with clients, running meetings. You'll learn different types of analyses. And, and you need to be prepared to doing that. The biggest fallacy which I've uh, encountered, not too often, but once in a while, is people saying, well, residency is so hard, or it's a lot of work, I don't want to work 80 hours, and have a sense that going and doing something else is an easier life. And I can assure you, uh, it's not easier. Consulting is not easier. Even any other job is not going to be easier. You're going to be working very hard. It's going to be tough. There are going to be highs and lows. There are going to be good times and hard times. And uh, it'll be very similar. So moving into a different space out of clinical care should never be moving away from clinical. It should always be moving towards something new and exciting. Because if you're just trying to move away, you're not going to be happy wherever you land. If you're moving towards deliberately, then you'll find it exciting and enticing and thrilling, and you'll have the time of your life just like, like I have. Thank you, Felix. And I think this ties very nicely to the idea that so many of physicians are really inspired by the passion to really make an impact, that there is no one way to make that impact. And there's no traditional path. So for example, like you can do medical school, and if you want to code on the side, you can code on the side, right? There are so many ways through which you can reach to that end goal as long as you know basically that goal and, and your motivation. So Felix, my last question is around how can our audience learn more about the work you do and follow the impact that you're having on healthcare? Well, well let, me start, let me start with the impact piece. And, and it, I think it ties a little bit also to some of your prior questions, which is why, why did I choose to uh, move into healthcare management as opposed to continuing a clinical path? And for me, it was realizing the divide and the gap which is between the two. I, I spoke about this earlier, the divide between clinical mindset and business management mindset. And and it also links back to this sense I always had that I wanted to give back to society. I wanted to return all the good things I'd, I'd received for, you know, without any of my doing, just from being privileged. And so I've always been looking at where can I really give something back. And often I find that we are motivated by creating value, but we're often motivated by creating value for ourselves. And that's something which I don't fully agree with. I think we should be motivated by creating value for others uh, and doing so deliberately. And so for me, remaining in clinical care would have been creating value mostly for myself and then helping a few patients. But moving into management consulting and into this healthcare management and bridging that space, which was unpopulated was really my way of giving back and doing something which I thought I was best suited to do and I didn't see a lot of people doing. And that was true back in the day, a little less so now because many more physicians are moving into that space, but it's still pretty unpopulated. So it's almost a, a component of giving back. 
And now, how do you measure the impact? I, I think many ways of, of looking at it. But in management consultant, we advise clients on big, difficult topics. And you will see uh, some of those recommendations being reported in the public press. You'll hear about mergers and acquisitions. You'll hear about divestitures. You'll hear about new constructions. You'll hear, hear about investments in new technologies. You'll hear about new care models. You'll hear about new payment models. You'll hear about innovation in, uh, in advanced computer sciences. And those are all items which have been worked on, for the most part, by some consulting organization, oftentimes by Deloitte, but by many others also. And there's something rewarding about seeing that you were able to help your clients move through a difficult situation, make difficult decisions, and make investments which help their organization and uh, mostly also help society more broadly by doing the right thing and by advancing how we provide care. So that's the reward and that's the way to have an impact. So those who want to follow me, I um, occasionally post on LinkedIn. I have some articles out there. I speak at conferences. Uh, you know, I'd love just hearing from you. If you want to reach out directly, ping me on LinkedIn. We'll get connected. Love having chats. Uh, if you want to talk about career, I uh, want to talk about life, anything. Uh, I love doing that. I, I do that frequently. And so I'm, uh, I'm here and I'd love to hear your story. I've told you my story. I'd love to hear your story. Amazing. Uh, Felix, it was such a privilege and honor to have you with us today. I'm sure our audience will really enjoy this episode. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you again, Felix, for being with us. And I can certainly confirm how invested you are in other people's careers and, and how much you care about imparting value and maximizing value for other people. Because in just the year that we've known each other, you know, every time I send you an email, you always respond back. And that's, you can't say that for even most people because they're very, very busy. And so, you know, I certainly appreciate that. And I'm sure our audience will appreciate that and they'll enjoy connecting with you as well. So thank you again for joining. My pleasure. Alex, that was such a fascinating conversation with Dr. Felix Matthews. You know, so insightful, very, very clear. And I think something that our audience will very much appreciate. I had a lot of takeaways from that episode, but uh, two takeaways that I wanted to highlight are what he talked about the reasons as to why you may move away from clinical medicine if you choose to do so. Don't think of it as moving away from hard work. We know that clinical medicine is a lot of hard work. It's long training. It's long hours. But if you want to succeed in anything, whether it's business management or management consulting or investing or in the startup world, you have to put in the hours. I have friends who have done their MD, MBAs and have taken non-traditional careers, but they'll tell you that some of the careers that they've taken is actually harder than residency. You know, investment banking, where they work 100, 120 hours a week where they don't have uh, capped hours. And so don't think of it as moving away from hard work, but think of it as moving towards something where you can actually add value. The second insight that I had is when you try to think about what you want to do in your career, and our guest touched upon this, Felix touched upon this in various answers, but let's turn it into a framework. Picture a Venn diagram with three circles. One circle is what you want to do, what you're interested in. The second circle is what you're good at, where your strengths lie. And the third circle is what society needs, where you can have maximum impact. And you really want to find a sweet spot of different factors, of these three different factors, when trying to decide what you want to do. So don't just go for what you're good at, but also consider where you'd be happy and where society needs your valuable skills. These are all interesting things to sort of consider. And impact can be 
a very broad term. You know, we were talking offline after the podcast with Felix, and he talked about how he was coding uh, during medical school at nights and where he was making some EMR software. Some of that software and functionality is still being used in Switzerland in hospitals. Coded that about 20, 30 years ago. And so wherever you go, work hard and you can have an impact on people and in places that you've completely moved away from. And I think that's the beauty of the work that we're doing. Alex, over to you. Thanks, Chad. Those are great uh, takeaways. And I think my two main takeaways are around the point of, and we've mentioned this a couple of times before, which is that there is no one way to reach an impact or to reach a goal. But I would like to rate on this because I think the interview with Felix is a great example. Usually when you've had so many people follow a specific path, people can fall under the assumption that there is only one way to go down that path. For example, people who want to go into a specific buy side investments, they usually follow the route of like two years of consulting or plus two years of investment banking. But the idea or the conclusion that I want to bring home is that that's not the only path. The same can apply to healthcare or to medicine, where, uh, for example, medical students can think that for you to reach, for example, this specific residency program that you want or the specific career goal that you want, you need to do X and Y and Z. And that's the only path to get there. But that's not actually the case because we can see, for example, from uh, Felix's experience is that he was doing medicine, but he, he was interested in computer science at the same time. So he actually learned computer science and was doing basically was creating electronic health record systems on his own during medical school. I think it's very important to realize that you can do that. And so, for example, if you're interested in entrepreneurship, I mean, why not try to build a company while you're doing medical school? If you're interested in, in investments, you can try to invest on your own, of course, and as long as like you're aware of the risks that you're taking. But the idea is that you can learn so much by doing and by following something that you're passionate about and that you want to learn about. So I think the example of Felix was great from this perspective. The additional data point or the additional conclusion that I want to bring home is that in healthcare, we are undergoing a massive transformation. And I think we will continue to undergo this transformation in the foreseeable future. And this means that there is a lot of importance to be put on the idea of reskilling and keeping your skills and keeping your game basically up to date. So I think it's very important for physicians and medical students to follow the latest trends in the industry and try to position themselves very well. So for example, data science is going to be a massive transformative factor in healthcare. And I think it would be a very good value add for medical students or physicians who are interested in data science to go and actually try to learn some basic coding skills on their own. There is a lot of available and accessible online resources like DataCamp. There's a lot of public databases that they can basically try to work with. There is a lot of Kaggle competitions. So, so the idea is that we're going through a transformation period and it is the responsibility of medical doctors, physicians or medical students who want to be on top of their game to actually like reskill and make sure that their skills are up to date. So I found that perspective also valuable. Those are our takeaways and join us next episode in which we would have very interesting stories of medical doctors who have achieved success in different walks of life outside the traditional career path. 
And also remember to follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast, and to catch our latest episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you soon.